and welcome back to Dose Makes the Poison the Toxcast. It's me, Kevin, your friendly neighborhood toxicologist. For today's episode, episode 20 of the Toxcast, I'm sitting down for a brief chat with fellow forensic toxicologist and friend of the podcast, Dr. Justin Brower. So let's get right to it. Yep, on a daily basis I consume enough drugs to sedate Manhattan. Long Island and Queens for a month. Okay, Mr. Jordan. I take Quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my back pain, Adderall to stay focused, Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine, well, because it's awesome. Morning, make the. Welcome back to the Toxcast. Tonight, I am talking with Dr. Justin Brower, forensic toxicologist, poison guy extraordinaire. I, I, I just welcome him back. You know he's been on the podcast before. We talked about a Netflix series way back when. I think it was like a, a year or a year and a half ago, which is crazy. But welcome back, Justin. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, I Like I said, it's been a while since since you were on here. And I... April 20th. April of 20? 2020, yep. Wow. I mean, 2021 has just flown by, number one, but it's, I, I don't know how, how 2021 has gone so fast and 2020 went so slow, but anyways, you're back, you're here, we're going to talk to you, because I want to know, and the listeners want to know, you're a forensic toxicologist now. How did you end up in forensic toxicology? So we're going to talk a little bit about your education, your background, how you became in, uh, in forensic toxicology, and what do you do throughout the day? Okay. So so let's start at the very beginning. Of, uh oh. Not not at not the very very beginning, but <laughs> not as a, not as a wee lad, but um how 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 did you first arrive in forensic toxicology? Um, by accident. Um, okay. Complete accident. Um, so, I mean, I'm not, my education wasn't in forensics or toxicology. I never had any dreams of going into toxicology or forensics. And honestly, when I got into forensic toxicology, I was probably only about 40, 45% sure I knew what it was. Um, I, I really went in having no clue what I was doing um, because I started off with a degree in chemistry um, and obtained my PhD in organic chemistry and then postdoctoral fellowship in cancer research and um, proteins and peptides and things like that and then went into uh, pharma and I went into a small biopharmaceutical company in South Carolina in Charleston South Carolina uh, making um, peptide-based drugs for things like uh, schizophrenia and for pain indications. Uh, that company eventually moved up to the Research Triangle Park in the, the Triangle area of North Carolina, so that's like the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area. Um, but like most small companies, they end up going bankrupt, you know, when the venture finance people, you know, get nervous and pull their funding. Um, and I was kind of tired of uh, the pharmaceutical industry is just a, a weird industry. 
is just a roller coaster, you know, in terms of, you know, in small companies, it's, you know, are you going to get funding? Are you going to have a job in six months? And even at a large company, you know, like GlaxoSmithKline in the area, you know, they're always downsizing or, you know, sending people to other facilities. And like everyone I know in pharma is always just either being laid off, getting a new job, being transferred. And I just didn't want that anymore. So uh, I spent the summer, you know, taking care of the kids. And then I um, found a job um, to supervise a laboratory. And the, the laboratory I was super, going to supervise uh, was at the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, which at the time was in Chapel Hill. And so this is North Carolina's um, only forensic toxicology laboratory for postmortem work. And I think they only hired me, um, well, well, one, because I'm great, but, but two, <laughs> I, you know, I had experience supervising people in projects, you know, like in pharma. But I also knew how to use liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry, which, as you know, Kevin, um, this was in 2009. In 2009, people weren't in forensics weren't really using LCMS that much. I mean, it was still pretty much in its infancy. I mean, people were dabbling in it, but they weren't using it um, for a lot of the production type work. And people just really just didn't know how to use it. Um, but I had that skill coming, you know, from my pharmaceutical work. Um, and so I started supervising the lab there. And again, I had no idea what really what forensics was. I didn't watch things, you know, like CSI or NCIS or any of those types of shows. So, I mean, I, I really started, I went in there completely blind as to what forensic toxicology was and what postmortem forensic toxicology is. So that's, you know, postmortem work for all you people out there. I only deal with dead people. So this is, you know, finding drugs, toxins, and poisons in dead people to help establish the means and manner of death. Um, so a lot of illicit drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, things like that. Um, and so I, I really didn't even know it existed. Um, I thought I would work there for about six months before I shot myself. Um, <laughs> wasn't love at first sight by by any means. Um, but I, I really grew to like it. I liked the the challenge of it. Um, you know, I liked the people that were there and and you know, you know, my mentor that was there. Um, she's mm -hmm. one of the best toxicologists and people, you know, in the country. Um, and so, you know, she really took me under her wing and, you know, you know, trained me in toxicology and postmortem work and forensics and you know, eventually morphed into the forensic toxicologist that I am today. And I've been there uh, 12 years now. Um, so I really took the non-traditional approach into forensic toxicology. And it's um, it was rare back then, um, but I think it's probably would be even more rare today, if not uh, close to impossible, I think, um, to get into forensics without having an educational background in forensics or toxicology. Um, it, it'd be really, really hard to get your foot in the door nowadays. W what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. It is, it is, from what I've seen, it is pretty difficult to get your foot in the door without some sort of forensics um, experience or a degree. Um, uh, you said you were organic chemistry, correct? Yeah. And I mean, I, I could see like degrees in analytical chemistry. Um, I mean, definitely. I mean, obviously, when we're using liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. Um, uh, but and from what I've seen, that holds true as well. I mean, I think your your path into forensic talks was rarer then, and it's even rarer now. Yeah. Um, you don't see that as, as something that someone, their, their routine path that goes in, that people take into forensic talks, you just don't see that. Um, which I think is really cool because now you've got that experience. Um, so you work in a postmortem toxicology only lab. Um, yeah. For the people out there, I've, I've talked about it before a little bit on the sh- on the show. Um, I don't really talk about my job too much, but um, postmortem toxicology. How does this differ from living people toxicology? Because there's a huge amount of differences. <laughs> Big difference, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like in living people, I mean, you have say clinical toxicology, and so these are people that are alive going to the hospital, they've ingested a toxin or a poison, or they're overdosing on some drug. Um, and there, you know, the, the emergency room physician and you know, professionals, you know, they're treating the symptoms and things like that, you know, to you know, keep you alive. Um, they may or may not be interested in exactly what you took. You know, they could narrow things down to, oh, it's an opioid overdose and treat you with naloxone and things like that. Um, but they may not care. Is, is it fentanyl? Is it heroin? Is it oxycodone? You know, it doesn't really matter um, what exactly you took in, in a lot of cases in how they treat you. Um, and then you have living people um, that are in forensics. Um, so like the antemortem, um, like DUI, DUID, crime lab type stuff. Um, you know, people that are, you know, pulled over under the influence of drugs. Um, there they, they do care exactly what you've taken, but, um, you know, the scope could be fairly limited into, you know, impairing type of drugs, you know, you're talking about illicit drugs, alcohols, um, you know, sedating type drugs and so forth. And there you're dealing with, you know, a lot of THC, blood, a lot of urine work. In postmortem work, it's another level of difficulty because one, you're looking for basically anything that can kill you. So you have a much wider scope of drugs and poisons and toxins that you're looking for. Um, But you're also looking at, you know, kind of the complete picture. You're also taking into account um, the scene findings and the history, you know, do they have paraphernalia around them? How were they last seen? Were they slurring their words? Was it a, a sudden collapse? Was it witnessed? And also pairing that with signs from the autopsy, you know, do they have, you know, congestion in the lungs or edema to, that to suggest an opioid overdose? Do they have, you know, an aortic dissection or something like that that might, you know, point towards uh, stimulant use? Um, but then you also have the specimen itself. So when you're, 
in clinical toxicology, you know, those people are alive and they just draw blood and it looks real nice. Um, you know, if it's a crime lab and, you know, it's a driving under the influence, they draw blood or you pee in a cup or something like that. It's, you know, nice and fresh and clean. Man, when you get dead people and they've been lying around for a few days, that blood is nasty. Um, <laughs> it turns nasty. It, and we test everything, like tissues as well. I mean, liver's a great specimen for us to use for a lot of drugs uh, to help us interpret, you know, cause and manner of death. And you get some really ripe livers. I mean, they've, they've been fermenting, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, you, you can't, it's hard to explain the, the different colors of blood and the different smells associated with a dead body. I mean, who knew that blood could be like every color of the rainbow pretty much? I mean, it, you know, from, you know, the greenish to the, you know, blues to the reds to the browns, and it's just nasty and all sorts of viscosities. And um, it can be a challenge, um, as well as things, you know, like postmortem redistribution and, you know, pre-analytical artifacts. And there's just a lot of things to consider and a lot of variables um, that can, one, make the job more enjoyable, um, but also make it more challenging as well. The enjoyable part is that no two cases are the same exactly. Um, you know, they all have different scenarios and circumstances. Um, you know, the to make things unique. Um, so it's good to have that that variety at times. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I I once wrote a poem. This is going back to to the colors of of postmortem blood. Um, <laughs> And indulge me if you will. I will. I, I'm not a poet. <laughs> You'll see by this. Postmortem blood is red. It may also be blue. Though it can be black, it smells horrible too. Thank Is you that for it? coming to my yep, that thank you. Thank you for coming to my poetry session. Good job, Kevin. <laughs> I'm no poet. It's it's very true though. Um it is. It, it, the the colors and the viscosity and just the what what we're calling postmortem blood is pretty much not really blood anymore. I mean, that's it's not a living individual's blood. I mean, yeah. it is completely different thing. Um, and it, smell. I forgot the smells. Yeah. I'm, I'm really sensitive to smells and things that smell bad. And man, I mean, I've puked a couple times. Like it's just been so bad. Oh. Um, I'm just like I'm out of here. Like all right. <laughs> you know someone cracks open a liver jar or something like that i'm like all right see ya i'm, I'm leaving <laughs> i've oh, I, oh. I i've never i've never puked before or anything like that but i've like gagged a few times when it comes to post-mortem samples it they can be as you said very ripe um yeah i i i will never forget the first case that i had and this was way back when this was 18 years ago, so a long time ago, and just a, a young Kevin. And I, I was given the first case to work on, and it was a post-mortem gastric sample of stomach contents. And nice. I, I'll say this, the only thing, I mean, it's been so long ago, and I, I it, was, it was a person who had consumed a large amount of pills and a large amount of alcohol um, and then committed suicide. 
and then ate well before committing suicide ate a nice steak dinner i don't like going yeah yeah yeah. you can see where this is going because i'm just a young young chemist analytical toxicologist and i get handed this sample and i'm like okay been been trained this is like the first casework i'm doing uh on my own and it's basically separate out the tablets from the gastric as well as from the basically undigested pieces of steak. So I am glad that I had just eaten lunch just prior to that. And guess what I had eaten for lunch? Well, knowing that you, you, you're a meat eater, probably steak. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was steak. So that was my first case ever. So just a short story, but uh, yeah, we deal with a lot of different things in postmortem talks. I mean, when you're talking blood, urine, vitreous fluid from the eye, tissues, I mean, liver, brain, kidney, spleen, all that nice stuff in yeah. all of its decomposed forms. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I tell people if it can come from or off a body, we can test it. I mean, not even in <laughs> bone. Um, we've done it all, seen it all. You know, I've done maggots yeah. before. Um, not a whole lot of utility in it, but um, I've done it a few times. It you just, yeah, after a while, you, you think you've seen it all and then something new will pop up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I, you, you said earlier that the, the most rewarding or, or fun, I think it may have been, part of the job um, is that n- no two cases are the same. Everything's different. Um, yeah, to some degree. To yeah. some degree, yeah. I mean, you have your, I mean, you have your cases that are routine. I mean, you have routine casework. But every so often, there's, there's an interesting thing that pops, pops through. But... I mean, no two cases are essentially the same from from the aspect. Circumstances could be different. I mean, toxicology could be different. But what is the most irritating thing that you find in a day-to-day toxicology, forensic toxicology work? What what do you think is the most irritating to you personally? Oh, the most irritating? Ooh. Or, I mean, it might not even be irritating, but it's more of, okay, frustrating maybe. Yeah, it it might be people that don't really understand what we do or, you know, people that we, we work with that don't understand or have taken the time to understand, you know, our, our scope and our limitations of what we can do. Um, well, I guess what's what could be irritating is, um, you know, toxicology being thrown under the bus all the time Hmm. so um when you know when someone dies and they have an autopsy and there's a lot of stages there's like an investigation and an investigation report toxicology is done generating report and then also um you know the autopsy which generates an autopsy report well the autopsy report requires toxicology to be done um obviously they need to know our results to help establish means and manner of death um, for their report. Um, but oftentimes, you know, when people are like, 
and we see it in the news. It's like, well, what's taking so long for the toxicology to be done? Well, the toxicology was probably done a long time ago, but they're waiting for the pathologist to finish their work and their report before they release all the results. And so we get that a lot, you know, when um, family members or um, law enforcement will ask like the medical examiner, well, how long will it take to get the toxicology report? And they'll say, oh, it's, they're really slow. You know, it might take like nine months. And it's like, well, no, we're done in like, you know, 30 days or so. It doesn't take nine months. It takes nine months for the entire process to be, be completed, you know, for the autopsy report to be completed and reviewed and finalized. Um, so that part's frustrating. I don't like that so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I could see that for sure, um, uh, especially when when you have um, people asking questions regarding how long is this going to take or or um, uh, kind of breathing down your neck sometimes about this, that. And it's not your part's done. I mean, that you're the tox is finished. The tox is complete. Yeah. Um, the overall investigation is not complete. I mean, the, the report's not complete, but I, I, I but think I, that it's one of the biggest misunderstandings I've found is people think that, I mean, toxicology is is rather simple that it could it, it takes just drug screen it's like a urine drug screen or something boom bam you got a result it's not as simple as that sometimes <laughs> yeah that's that's an excellent point too i mean you know people that do like workplace drug testing or something or you know at a school or college or whatever and it's like hey pee in a cup it's like oh you tested positive for like marijuana or cocaine or something and it's like well that's great but we're a forensics lab and we have forensic standards so you know you obviously know this very well but for everybody else you know we can't just rely upon one test um so if we screen and we find say cocaine and fentanyl we can't report hey we found cocaine and fentanyl we need to um confirm that result in um, ideally by another different test um, and or in a different blood specimen or a different type of specimen. And it's done on a, usually a different day um, by a different analyst even. And that just takes time um, because you end up really, you're just doing everything twice. Um, mm -hmm. Just confirm that it it's really there because we may have to go to court to defend our results and you know we can't be you know 51 percent sure of you know, like oh there's probably fentanyl in there uh we have to be 100 percent certain that fentanyl was, was in there and so you know we might have you know a positive result in a screen in the central blood like in from the heart and then we have a confirmation in a peripheral specimen like say the from the femoral vein um and so there's a lot that goes into it um which like you said it, it takes time and effort and for every one of those tests you know it's not only just the analyst that's pulling those specimens and running those assays but it takes another analyst uh, or toxicologist to review those results mm -hmm. and then, you know some someone in the admin or document specialist area you know to put all this paperwork together or collate it, you know, electronically, and then a toxicologist to certify those results and make sure everything's correct. I mean, so for 
every additional test you do, it takes, you know, three or four additional people and eyes on it. Um, so it really adds up. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, it does, it takes, it takes a while. <laughs> um, I, now, in in just briefly, in in a normal day for you, what does a normal day for you as a forensic toxicologist look like? Well, I show up about fifteen minutes late, and I, <laughs> so no one sees me sees me coming in. Uh, no, um, usually my my usual day is um, I show up early. I'm usually the first person um, in the lab. Um, I, I like to have a little bit of peace and quiet in the morning. <laughs> Things get too crazy. Um, I'll usually spend about the first hour um, probably answering emails from other pathologists or district attorneys, law enforcement, things like that, um, about cases and, and so forth. Um, and then I'll start either reviewing assays and batches of results. Um, but I spent a lot, a lot of time certifying toxicology reports. So that's, so we're not a, a we're not a paperless uh, lab yet. And so we have, you know, physical hard copies and folders of each case, which contains all of the raw data, um, information uh, about, you know, cause of death or, you know, the history behind the case. Um, and so I'm, you know, making sure that all the results on the toxicology report are correct. Um, that we did the appropriate testing, that everything kind of makes sense. You know, if you have, you know, you know, a 75 year old in, you know, a nursing home and, you know, they've got a, a boatload of cocaine or something like that, you know, that might be a little unusual. It's how a lot of people <laughs> might want to go out, but you know, that might be a little unusual. And so, you know, you might have to dig in to the case a little bit more. Um, the same thing with children, if you have, you know, an eight-month-old with fentanyl and cocaine, like that's not quite normal either, and so that's another layer of complexity that you got to think about. Um, so you're trying to make sure that everything kind of makes sense with regards to the case, and then formulating, um, you know, an opinion as to the the cause of death. Now, a lot of these cases are can be really routine. I mean, it's like. Fentanyl and cocaine, fentanyl and cocaine, cocaine and fentanyl, 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 <laughs> fentanyl and meth. It, a lot of them can be routine, um, but it's the the non-routine ones that you've got to put a little bit more thought into. You know, I I think you probably heard me, you know, give talks before at conferences where I say that that 99% of our job is very routine and that we make our money off that 1% of oh, yeah. the unusual and the weird and the bizarre and the wacky. Um, and so... When those pop up, you know, you've got to, you know, give it a little bit more uh, attention to the case. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'll spend a large portion of my day uh, signing out, certifying, thinking about cases and so forth. Um, but I've also been very involved in method development of new drugs as they pop up, a lot of fentanyl analog, cannabinoids and all that. I've, over the years, I've taken a step back from those roles a bit um but i've never completely out of it um you know i'm still the go-to person when the instruments break down or something weird <laughs> happening like hey justin you know Call justin yeah his instruments <laughs> acting up you know what do we do and 
you know, I've got to go figure out what the problem is and do some troubleshooting. And, um, you know, it's just something that just comes with, you know, experience and, and grad school, grad school teaches you how to fix problems and fix instruments and, you know, be a, a MacGyver, uh, these sorts of things, because <laughs> a lot of academic labs are, you know, rolling in cash. And so you have a lot of, you know, hand-me-down instruments and stuff like that. So you've got to be pretty good at, you know, getting things to work. Um, well, just the other day I had to come home for lunch because I had a piece off of our orbit trap. Um, I had a screw that was stuck and couldn't get out and I couldn't get the housing back on. So I had to take it home and take the Dremel and grind it down. So I fit everything back together. Nice. I mean, a lot of people aren't thrilled with the prospect of taking a piece off of, you know, a quarter million dollar instrument and taking it home and taking your Dremel to it and grinding on it. But, you know, you do what you got to do. Exactly. You do what you got to do. <laughs> you got to do. Yeah. Um, and so besides signing out cases, um, working on instruments, um, really just kind of being the go-to person for, um, you know, the people in the lab, the the analysts, when they have questions of, you know, here's something unusual, what do I do? Um, talking to uh, family members on the phone, things like that. And I, I think that will probably lead into your next question of what do you find rewarding about the yeah, job? That was the next question. Yeah, I know how you think. Um, <laughs> and the rewarding part, and it, it sounds so sappy. It, it does. Um, but the rewarding part is really being a service to um, North Carolina. So um, as I mentioned before, I work for the state of North Carolina, and you know we're we're the only postmortem tox lab in North Carolina. So we serve all 100 counties in North Carolina and deal with all the postmortem cases. You know that's like 15,000 cases a year. Um, so you really do end up pretty much seeing it all. Um, but we do, you know, have a service to North Carolina and being able to give answers to people about how their loved ones died um, is important to me, you know, and when they're calling me and asking me about, you know, the toxicology report or what killed their loved one, I mean, that's really one of the worst days of their life. I mean, they've lost that they care deeply about, and I would hate to be in that position. And, you know, they have all ranges of emotion, um, you know, all those like I don't know, those 10 steps of like anger and denial and and all that. Um, but just being able to, to help them and, you know, explain how and why their loved one died, um, you know, is important to me because, it you know, it gives them closure. I mean, I think it'd be horrible for, for someone to not know how they died um, or or why or how it came about especially when we have, um, you know, this fentanyl epidemic going on and people are like, oh, they, they just took a pill. And then you've got to explain to them, well, you know, a lot of these, you know, Xanaxes that they buy off the street aren't really Xanax. You know, well, most of it is, most of them are, you know, designer benzodiazepines maybe mixed in with a little bit of fentanyl and, you know, that's why they're dead. So being able to explain that to them is, is important to me, um, which can be frustrating <laughs> at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for um, sure. But it's, it's helped me, um, I think, become more patient as 
a person and just being able to, you know, listen to people. And, you know, sometimes they just need someone to vent to or just someone to talk to. And next thing I know, I'm on the phone for half an hour just listening to them and their entire story. And, um, but I don't mind really again because, you know, it's an important service, I feel. Oh, yeah. Like I said, it sounds really sappy. And I mean, it, it is sappy, but it's <laughs> it's the dang truth. I mean, it is the truth. Yeah. So there's that service, but you also have another service I think you provide, um, I, which is really cool. And you might, I don't know if you look at it this way, but you're a writer. Um, so you're a forensic toxicologist. You're also writing in quote unquote spare time. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know how you do this, but man. Um, so, so, and you've got a book coming out. I mean, sometime here soon, right? Uh, sometime. Yeah. So um, I'd always wanted, ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a writer. I always thought that it'd be really cool to live in Maine and be a writer. Um, <laughs> I've never been to Maine, still haven't been to Maine. Beautiful, beautiful place. So I wouldn't mind sometime. Um, but you know, when things in my career didn't quite work out, you know, I figured, you know what, if I'm going to write a book, I might as well just go for it. Um, and I happened to know some people that had, you know, written some nonfiction books and knew the process. And so I wrote a proposal and, um, got an agent very quickly and they were able to, to sell the book to uh, WW Norton and it's called nature's poisons. And it's just about the um, natural, you know, drugs and toxins and um, poisons, you know, in our world and the stories behind them. And so we're talking accidental poisonings and murders and mayhem and just nature's most devious, you know, creations. So it, it touches not only on like the chemistry and toxicology of these uh, natural poisons and toxins and venoms, but the history behind them too, you know, like famous poisonings or intoxications and cases. Um, so really just a, a, a broad um, like survey of, of, you know, some select poisons, you know, that are you know, interesting and unique and fun and funny. And so I've been, so I've written that and I'm in the editing stage now. I'm in editing hell. I liked writing it. Um, I find I don't like editing as much. <laughs> um, I have a, a fantastic editor. You know, she's, she's awesome. Um, but what she does is she, she asks questions, you know, like little, like those little comments, like on the side of the document, you know, oh, that you can, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, Oh, this is interesting. Tell me about this. Or, you know, why is this? Or what is that? Because, you know, something that might be very um, common to me or in my head, and I'm typing it out, and I think it's common knowledge to me, isn't to anybody else. And so if it's new to her, and she's asking, it's like, oh, yeah, that, that would be good to know. And so I've got to go back and rewrite and research and things like that. So it's, kind of a, a slower process for me. Um, so I'm trudging along with that and it looks like the release might be spring or summer of 23. So it's a, 
it's a long ways off. Um, but publishing is a weird industry, just like pharma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I went into it just like toxicology, not knowing anything about it. Um, but it's interesting and unique and just learning about timelines and how long things take. I mean, it's, it's a marathon until it's a sprint at the end. Uh, so some things can just take a long time. So once everything's complete and finalized and, you know, can't change another single word, it can still take about 10 months or so, you know, to get into the bookstores uh, just due to, you know, physically printing the books and shipping and getting it into uh, the catalogs and so forth. Um, but I'm looking forward to all that. And I guess I should mention why I chose natural based poisons and all that. And mm -hmm. that's because I really wanted to kind of challenge myself to learn a bit more about, you know, poisons and toxicology. And in our line of work, you know, we deal a lot with, you know, fentanyl and cocaine and heroin and methadone and, you know, antidepressants. And it's all very routine, but we're not going to encounter, you know, strychnine or brevitoxin or scopolamine or things like that in our casework. Um, but in the natural world, you know, they're abundant and ubiquitous. And so it just gave me a, a topic to um, you know, just dive into and learn more, not only about our natural world, but about toxicology and pharmacology and like the science behind these things. So on that note, um, do you have a favorite poison out of everything that you could, I mean, that you've written about in the past that you're writing about now that you're editing that you've ever learned about, do you have a favorite poison? You know, it always changes. Um, <laughs> whenever someone asks me, um, you know, I like I like things that kind of have like a history to them. You know, a lot of times when people say, you know, what's your, you know, when they ask a toxicologist, what's your favorite poison? They always, I guess, assume like, well, what's the most deadly? Like, what's mm -hmm. the most toxic or lethal? Um, but for me, I, I, I really like the stories behind them. Um, so like, I like scopolamine, um, which can come from, um, you know, various, you know, like angel trumpets and things like that. Um, you know, cause that has a history in like, say, um, childbirth with what's called twilight sleep where, you know, the early 1900s, um, p um, physicians would inject delivering, you know, birthing mothers with uh, a combination of like scopolamine and morphine and the scopolamine would just um, act as really just like an amnesic so that it would just like essentially keep them awake um, but just kind of put them in a, a haze so that they wouldn't remember the the pain and the torture of you know giving birth to another living thing um, so I like things like that and um, you know the stories behind things and how scopolamine was really the first truth serum um, that that was used, um, you know, invented or popularized by Dr. House, not Dr. House MD, like from the TV show, but <laughs> Dr. House um, and how he used it as a, a truth serum to um, and he realized from the birthing mothers that 
you know, he, he could ask questions to these mothers that were injected with scopolamine and that they couldn't tell a lie. They were in such a like a, a mental fog that they just couldn't formulate a story to lie about something. They could only tell the truth. They didn't have the mental capacity to, you know, string words together that weren't true. So as a, a truth serum, he popularized that and again, early 1900s, you know, 1910s, 1920s or so, um, and went around the country injecting prisoners with scopolamine to elicit the truth. But he didn't use it like what we would think in terms of like getting confessions out of people. He really thought that this truth serum would reduce crime because, you know, if you had like, say, a gang of bank robbers, you know, like, say, five people robbing a bank or something like that. And he saw it as, well, if one person got caught and they were under the influence of scopolamine truth serum, well, then they would give up. Uh, uh, gang. Be like a and narc serum. Exactly. Narc serum. <laughs> and so he thought it would be a crime deterrent. And he really thought that, you know, the advent of the, the narc serum uh, would <laughs> reduce crime and reduce prison populations and save, you know, the country millions and millions and millions of dollars by not having to lock people up because crime would be reduced. So he really saw it from a, a different vantage point as how we view truth serum as in eliciting a confession. He saw it as a way to deter crime. Um, so it, it, again, it's those types of stories that are fascinating to me and, and, what I find interesting. Yeah, that, and it's so, cool because I didn't I didn't know about that. I learned something new tonight. I did not know about that. There you go. I'll give you this chapter and you can be a beta reader for it and you can learn all about it. <laughs> hey, I would be happy. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um last topic here. Um Okay. I uh, you're you're a chili pepper aficionado. You're a capsation head. You love your chili peppers. I don't, I, do. know if, I don't know if everybody else knows that, but you, you do. Um, Maybe not as you do, but but yeah, I like, like growing chilies and hot sauces and stuff like that. Yeah, so what is your, and this is just kind of off, off topic here, but what is your favorite pepper to grow? Um, I like chiltepins. So okay. these are, they grow in kind of like the higher elevations of, say, like Mexico, usually. Um that sort of area of um, Central America, Mexico, they're little tiny pea-shaped peppers. Um, and so you'll have a bush that might be three feet tall, has a pretty wide canopy of a couple feet, and it will just have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, this, of these, you know, red little pea-shaped peppers on them. And they have a really nice flavor to them. They're, they're hot as hell. Um, but, you know, you just grind those things up, mix with a little bit of vinegar and some salt, and it just makes a nice little dipping sauce. So those are one of my favorites that, that I like. Do you have a pepper that you just, you grew once and you'll never, ever grow it again? Grew once and what, won't grow again. You just didn't like it. You hated it. You, I mean, it just wasn't, wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Wow. You know, I don't think I have one, but, you know, I don't grow a lot of things like cayenne peppers. Mm -hmm. 
um, just because I, I don't really use them a whole lot. Um, so I've grown cayenne before and they look cool, you know, like the long skinny peppers, but I just found that I didn't really use them because I don't, uh, I didn't cook with them because they're not really made for cooking. They're made for like sauces and hot sauces. Mm -hmm. But for my hot sauces, I usually use, um, I like growing Tabasco. Um, those are another favorite to, uh, to grow because they, they look cool. Cause again, cause they have hundreds and hundreds of little upright. Oh yeah. Um, peppers. Um, but I'll grow like Tabasco and then also mix that up with like red jalapenos and um, habaneros and other habanero type varieties for the sauces. So I guess probably ones that I've grown before, but don't do again or anymore, probably like the Cayennes. Cool. Um, so now we're at the end of our time here. Um, I, I, is there anything about forensic toxicology or your, your, your work, your career, um, anything with the book, anything that we didn't talk about, but you think would be very interesting for the audience to know? Well, this has come up a, a little bit recently with me, you know, people asking me like how to get into forensics and forensic toxicology. And we, we talked about how I got into it. Um, and even how you got into it is probably wouldn't work nowadays. I mean, you got a degree in chemistry and you went to work, I think, at your company, right? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, um, without any, like, friends. Like, you didn't plan to grow into forensics, if I recall. Um. Well, I mean, I personally, I I was hired in as, like, research and development, and, but I was doing a pharmaceutical project that because we had uh, the laboratory that I was working for at the time had a, a GLP project or it was actually GMP at the time but GLP GMP project for a pharmaceutical company and I was they had that company had farmed that out to us so I was analyzing these urinary tract medication the tablets for the active ingredients using HPLC and um doing all sorts of flame photometer testing and UV vis testing and even simulating gastric for um, the, they were enteric coded so they wouldn't degrade in your gastric, but they were to degrade in the intestine. So you had to simulate that it gastric fluid and intestinal fluid. And so over time it would show that it wouldn't degrade in the gastric fluid and it would degrade over a certain amount of time in the intestinal fluid. Um, but that's how I started. And then I kind of happened into um, uh, uh, someone in the lab left and I got a little bit more of, or I got a little bit of a project of kind of the non-routine stuff that we did in our laboratory. And then it kind of went from there, but so it's a little bit different, but yeah. So, so obviously how we kind of got into forensics is probably different than most people would today. And, you know, in our, in our work, we talk about the CSI effect quite a bit. And when we talk about the CSI effect, it's usually in terms of like going to court and how people kind of view forensics in terms of, well, they think forensics can be done in like, you know, a nice one hour time slot, you know, in the, in the evening or like, you know, it only takes a few days and we only work in darkly lit rooms and things like that. Um, so kind of like the, the public perception of forensics and toxicology. 
The other side of the CSI effect and the popularity of these shows is that a lot of people wanted to go into forensics. And so, you know, when I started in like, um, when we're talking, when I started supervising the lab and hiring people, you know, our basic entry level position, like our minimum requirement was um, just a degree, a college degree in a science and that's mm -hmm. it. And, you know, we would get tons of applications and I don't think at first any of them had forensics experience at all. It was usually just a degree in chemistry and that was about it. Um, but, you know, if you fast forward to now for an entry level position, you know, the, the bar is really a master's degree in uh, forensic toxicology or forensics. And then they also usually have, you know, six plus months of experience. And so getting just your foot into a door in a forensics lab or a forensic toxicology lab is so much more difficult than it used to be 10 years ago. And I attribute that to, again, the CSI effect of, you know, people watching these shows and saying, hey, this is really cool stuff. I want to get into that. And now it's like everybody has a master's degree, um, you know, in forensics. And if you don't, boy, it's really tough, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to get a job. And, and honestly, yeah, that's kind of, sad for me to see these people that you know they they've gone to college they've gotten a degree like in forensics or in like a lot of them have a degree in forensic science or in chemistry or toxicology and then having to go to grad school and pay for it you know just to get an essentially an entry-level job making not a whole lot of money not making what they're really worth mm -hmm. and that's that's kind of sad for me um you know, I mean, it's good to have really talented, skilled people in the lab, but I still feel for um, just that that direction that it's gone. You know, for for them, because you know we have people with PhDs that are applying for entry level positions, and I'm thinking, man, they didn't go to grad school thinking that they're going to take an entry level position in a lab you know, shaking test tubes, you know, for like 40 grand a year. Like that's yeah. just, that's insane for me to think about. Like, hell, I think I'm underpaid by a ton. Most <laughs> <laughs> people really are. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, um, I, I've seen those situations and I mean, it is, it, it is crazy though. When like you just said regarding like a PhD, person with PhD they've gone all that time and in a lot of places it's so hard to get your foot in the door um now I I typically don't talk about the job but I just say that it like a lab like ours we will um a, a bachelor's degree in biology chemistry anything like that you get your foot in the door with that in a lab like ours um like mine um uh, it'll doing bench work, accessioning, forensic accessioning, extractions, um, the the wet chemistry aspects of it. Um, but they, we we definitely do um, that sort of thing with with bachelor's degrees and. Uh, but no master's degrees though are now 
starting to see those are the the most common things yeah uh, for sure um and back when i started i mean that wasn't even a thing really i mean it was all bachelor's degrees yeah i don't even at that point in time when i first started a couple decades ago it was it was just i mean bachelor's 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 and you, you had your phd level people but they were do they were the ones in the lab they were the the toxicologists that were signing off on reports and things yeah. um, but now you're starting to see as well as PhDs on the on the on the bench and and in that so for sure i've seen that same stuff yeah and then the idea of someone working their way up like it doesn't really happen that way anymore it's like you're not going to say even if you get a you know, an entry level position with, you know, a master's degree, you're not going to be able to work there and be like, hey, I'm a, a chemist one or a chemist two and work my way up to chemist three. And then I'll become a toxicologist and then, you know, run the lab at some point, you know, 20 years later. It's like, that'll never happen mm-hmm. anymore. We know people, um, you know, some, you know, giants in the field of postmortem work that just have a bachelor's degree. Yes, and it, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that will never happen again. Mm-hmm. I, not in our generation of people. Yeah. It, no, I, it just, I agree. This won't happen. You know, everyone's looking for someone with um, a PhD to certify these cases. Mm-hmm. I presumably because it looks good to have, you know, a doctor or a PhD, you know, as your prefix and suffix, um, or, you know, testifying in court. Um, but but yeah, the idea of like working your way up and um, just not gonna happen. Like I don't think that would happen for you today. You know? No, to, no, to your, no, no. And you know, for those that don't know, and you know, Kevin doesn't talk about his job a whole lot. I mean, he's got a a really good, well-respected position in his company, and I don't think that would be possible for him to to step into with you know his you know pedigree today you know 18 years ago yeah i could work him with his way up but today no i don't yeah. think that would happen it is a whole new world these days i, I mean, would be in that position and i would be your boss yes that is very <laughs> true that is very true but here you're the boss <laughs> your podcast <laughs> well it's been a pleasure talking to you again on on, on the show tonight um I, it's got to have you back more often, actually, because the people love you. So, oh, I hope uh, so. Yeah, I, I got a lot of good, good feedback from the episode that you were on. We were talking about the the Netflix series um, oh, yeah. regarding the crime lab stuff. Um, yeah, I did too. People like that that episode. Yeah, that was. And I think it's. I mean, when you can just get on and talk about, I mean, what goes on and and kind of experiences and how crazy even like that situation that those stories and that situation crazy enough i mean that that, that was a bananas. whole that that is bananas yes it's crazy <laughs> but but yeah so thank you very much for coming on talking to us for a bit about your your history your education what what do you do throughout the day What's it like for the friends toxicologist, as well as was your book, which I cannot wait to get a hold of this when it when it comes out, because it's great. 
Um, uh, now you also have a website, which kind of, I'm assuming kind of spurred the book. It did. So the website is naturespoisons.com, um, where I would just write about, again, pretty much what's in the book, um, just natural based poisons and toxins and venoms, um, like the science and the pharmacology behind it. And usually with an unusual or a fun case here and there. And that really was the impetus for, for the book. Um, I kind of started it just to get me in the habit of writing as just practice pretty much, but there's about a hundred posts on there. And, and currently there's, um, posts on, um, kind of how to write a book, you know, if, if, so if anyone out there is interested in, you know, like I really want to write a nonfiction book or a book in general, like what are the steps of, you know, how do you, how do you do it? How do you get an agent? How do you write a proposal? And things like that. That's that's on the website, naturespoisons.com. So a lot of people have enjoyed that. Cool. Well, sir, thank you again for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking with you tonight. And we're going to have you on again, no doubt, soon enough. You will be All back right. on here. We got to talk to you again. So thank you very much for coming on. Uh, not a problem at all, Kevin. Talk to you later. Six little words that question start with who, what, where, when, how, and why. Question start with these. Step right up and answer all my questions if you please. So there you have it. That was a chat with Dr. Justin Brower. Um, if you like the show, check us out on Twitter at at ToxCast or on Facebook at the Dose Makes the Poison podcast page. I've set up a website for the podcast at dosemakesthepoison.com. You heard that right, dosemakesthepoison.com. Please visit it. It's a central hub for the ToxCast, plus a blog that I'm setting up as a companion to the podcast. And also, while you're there, something cool I really got going on, please check out my merchandise shop. I am starting to dabble a bit in designing shirts and things like notebooks and face masks and blankets and other things that have science or toxicology related designs. There's some pretty cool stuff there, I think, but I'm a noob when it comes to this stuff. So just check it out. If you like anything cool, if you don't, and if you'd like to see something else there, let me know. I'm going to try to mess around a bit with things and come out with new designs pretty regularly. So far, I have about six or seven different things up there, and there's more to come, though, so just stay tuned. So, until next time, as I always close out the show, please, 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 always remember to never practice toxicology in a vacuum. <laughs>